Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our series in Isaiah, so if you'll be finding chapter 5, we'll be looking at the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5 this morning. You know, the grace of God toward his people is one of the most beloved and pervasive themes in all of the Bible. Though the word grace is found very seldom in the Old Testament, the message is there. And of course, the message is very prevalent in the New Testament where the word occurs frequently. In fact, among other names that we've acknowledged that Isaiah is often called, some people also call him the greatest prophet of God's grace. Much of this comes from his calling in chapter 6, a passage of scripture that is very familiar to some of us. And a passage that sadly we are not going to do as part of this series because I've done that passage in the past. Now we normally define grace as the unmerited favor of God toward us. This definition acknowledges that we do not deserve any grace. That's why it's called the unmerited favor because we are not worthy of God doing anything for us because we are sinners who are separated from him. And yet the fact is that God draws us unto himself. He saves us wholly by his grace, though of course he does use the means of faith to bring that about. It's one of the five key points of the Reformation theology, that we are saved by the grace of God alone, without any mixture of works. It is solely by grace, and therefore it is a gift of God. Frankly, that is where most of us end our understanding of grace. You probably would not debate that part with me, though you may not understand the finer points of it. You would all acknowledge that, yes, we are saved by grace without any mixture of works. That's why you're in a conservative Protestant evangelical church. But again, that's where grace seems to stop for us. Of course, we are saved by grace, But after our salvation, grace is not overly part of our theology or our daily thought. But it should be. It should be because the work of God's grace on our behalf goes well beyond that initial moment of salvation. The grace of God is also an active outworking of our salvation, both corporately in the life of the church and personally in the individual lives of believers. So grace is not just about conversion or regeneration. Grace is also about sanctification, that is, transforming us, conforming us into the image of God. And that is why we speak of the means of grace, those things that God uses to make that happen in our lives. That is the preaching and the reading of God's Word, the ordinances or sacraments of the church, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the prayers of God's people. These things are used by God to bring us into a transforming relationship with Him that is an ongoing transformation. 
And you can see how all of this is connected to the church. Though, of course, many professing believers don't seem to make that connection. But what this also means is that if you claim to accept the grace of God for salvation, now this is the main point this morning. If you claim to accept the grace of God for your salvation, and that grace is not transforming you into the likeness of Christ, you are in essence trampling upon God's grace. And you say, wait a minute. Is that even possible? Is that a real thing? To be able to trample upon God's grace. Well, before we move to Isaiah chapter 5, which again is our text for the day, I want to read you 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, you know that it was filled with problems. Of all of the New Testament letters that were written to churches, this seems to be the one that was most messed up. There were clearly some people in this church who were claiming to be believers, and yet they were not. There were perhaps many others who were claiming to be believers, but they were clearly not living like it, which is why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He writes, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Again, you may not have even understood that that's a possibility. You might have thought to yourself, you either receive the grace of God or you deny the grace of God. You either accept the grace of God for salvation or you reject the grace of God and you are not saved. And yet there is this other category that's very clear from that verse and the story we're going to read this morning that it is possible to claim to accept the grace of God for salvation. And yet, if that grace is not transforming you, you are trampling upon the grace of God. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed down a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitant of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain not upon it. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the song of the vineyard. Isaiah begins by telling us that he is going to sing us a song. Now, I'm not going to sing it for you, but he is singing a song to tell a story. And he is singing it on behalf of his beloved. Now, we know that the beloved is God which is reminding us of the depth of devotion between Isaiah and his God, this intimate relationship that Isaiah enjoyed with God. But I want you to understand that they did not know that. 
They did not know when Isaiah says in verse 1, I want to sing you a song of my beloved, they have no idea that he's talking about God. This is a chapter that we've called, uh, or the end of the first five chapters that we've called the preface to this book. And then, of course, in verse 6, that I've already referenced, will be the great call of Isaiah, that vision he has of God on his throne. We are clearly now back into the present condition that the people are under. This is not the ideal future that we looked at last week. This is now present reality. And rather than straightforward rhetoric about the problems that they are facing and the judgment that will come as a result, the rest of the chapter will do that. But Isaiah is going to start with a story or a song. And again, what's hard for us to comprehend, in part because I've just read us the whole story, and perhaps you've read it in the past, but they don't know what's coming as it unfolds. A love song about a vineyard? Well, maybe it's going to be a catchy tune. Maybe there's going to be some memorable lines here that we can go away singing. You have to remember, this is an oral society. They do not have a copy of this in front of them, as Isaiah is saying it. Isaiah is speaking or singing it, and along the way, it's going to begin to make sense to them. But I want you to try to put yourself in their shoes, and as we walk through this, try to imagine that you don't know what's coming, that you don't know this is about them or us until the last verse or two. So this is similar to some of the parables of Jesus. A parable is a story designed to teach a spiritual truth. And sometimes Jesus taught in parables so that the message could actually be hidden for a while until he was ready to deliver it. Or as far as genre goes, this story or song by Isaiah is identical to what we find in the story of David and Nathan. You remember that story? Nathan the prophet tells David a story. The story is about a man who is very wealthy, but a traveler comes by, and rather than giving up one of his own lambs in order to provide for the traveler, he steals a lamb from his neighbor who is much, much poorer and only has the one lamb. And after Nathan gets through telling this story, David is furious, and David passes judgment on this man, telling Nathan how much this man is going to have to pay back in order to rectify what he's done. And then Nathan delivers that famous line, you are the man. And of course, it's a story about David taking Bathsheba. Well, that's what Isaiah is doing here. Isaiah is telling a story that is going to lead them to make a judgment that is ultimately going to be a judgment about themselves. And so we see the, first of all, the owner's preparation here. This owner does everything possible to get this vineyard ready. Everything in this song or this story screams that the owner did absolutely everything within his power to prepare a vineyard that would ultimately yield an abundant crop of grapes. Now, there's some, that's something most of us know little about, unless, of course, you grew up on a farm or you have a large garden. But this particular vineyard, it says it's a very fertile field, the choicest of land so that the soil would be nearly perfect. But of course, no soil is perfect, and so there's going to be rocks in there, especially in a land like Israel. And I don't mean those little rocks that might be in your yard. These are going to be large rocks that are going to have to be removed in order for the field to produce a crop. And so that's exactly what the owner does. 
and then he plants his vines. Now notice again the emphasis there. These are not just ordinary vines. These are the choicest of vines. The owner spares no expense nor time in preparation for this harvest so that he can, in essence, assure him of a tremendous produce. But we see not only the owner's preparation, we see the owner's protection. It would have taken roughly two years for those planted vines to ultimately yield grapes. So what is the farmer going to do in those two years? Well, obviously, there's going to be some maintenance involved. That is, he's going to have to weed out the the weeds that come and go from time to time. But there's going to be some other time for him to do other things. And so he takes those very rocks that he had taken out of the field, and he builds a wall of protection around his vineyard to keep all of the animals out who might come in and destroy or eat the crop. And then he's going to build a watchtower, which among other things would be a place for a lookout so that he could see any kind of enemy that was coming. Um, But those stones would be used for protection. And so then thirdly, we see the owner's permanence, meaning there are several factors in this story that make it clear this owner is here to stay. That watchtower that I mentioned a moment ago, It's not just a place to look for enemies. It is a place of residence. That is, this is where the owner's going to live while he's tending his vineyard. This is not an absentee landowner who plants a crop and moves somewhere else. This is a man who's going to live in the vineyard to make sure this has the, the best fruit possible. And likewise, the construction of a wine vat tells the same story. We saw some of these in Israel when we went a few years ago. This would have been two vats, basically, on a, on a hillside. There would have been both of them carved out into the stone. And so there's going to be a, a, a vat, a, a circular uh, indention in the ground carved out. Then there's going to be a little trough that runs from that one to another one that is downhill from it. And that upper one is going to be the place where they put the grapes and then you're going to walk on the grapes. That doesn't sound very good in this day and age of COVID, but that's the way they did it. They would walk on the grapes, releasing the juice, and the juices would flow down that trough into the second vat, and that is where it would be collected. So everything about this song tells us that the owner was very diligent in his preparation, and as a result, he expected a great harvest. And again, I say that to remind you that the people who are hearing this orally don't know what's coming. So right now, all they know is the owner has done everything within his power to prepare this field for a harvest. And they are in agreement with this owner. They're, They're shaking their heads. They're like, yes, he's done everything. I don't see anything that he's missed. He certainly is going to have a great harvest. Anybody who works that hard certainly expects a return on their investment for their time and money, so the farmer expects a crop. And he says, his beloved, uh, what more could I have done? You be the judge. What more could I have done? And again, like Nathan, Isaiah is leading them to make a judgment that is ultimately going to be against themselves. And because, again, this is an oral society, you can well imagine that they might have called back. Sometimes you do that with me in a sermon, but I'm really not looking for it. When I ask questions in sermon, it's usually rhetorical. But here in this oral society, they might have called back out to him. So when Isaiah says, what more could my beloved have done? You can just imagine some of them going, nothing. He did everything possible. There's nothing more he could have done. And that's exactly right. And that's exactly what Isaiah wanted to lead them to understand. 
And so we move to the sadness of the vineyard then. If the owner has done everything in his power to produce a crop, and they've acknowledged that, they're in agreement with him, why does it produce a crop of wild grapes? Clearly, all of these preparations didn't yield the desired results. In fact, they yield stinking fruit. That's what the word wild actually means. I'm not making that up. It, It actually means stinking, rotten. This is fruit that is good for nothing. Rather than the sweet grapes he expected, he got bitter and rotten fruit that was good for nothing. And Ezekiel, in his letter, makes it clear that a a vineyard is good for producing grapes or it's good for nothing at all. If it doesn't produce good grapes, then it is good for nothing other than burning for fuel. So what was the problem here? Again, as we've already discussed, the owner did everything within his power, so the blame for this stinking fruit must lie elsewhere, and the people reading would read, or people listening would readily agree. They would totally identify at this point with the disappointment that this owner feels. They would be shocked and disgusted at the fact that in spite of all of these preparations, there is nothing but stinking fruit. Now, they're going to think differently in a moment. But right now, as we march through this story, Again, they're nodding their heads. You did everything you could. I don't know what went wrong, but it certainly wasn't your fault. And so when it comes to this sad vineyard, no owner is going to continue to pour good money after bad. So because it produced stinking fruit, he declares that there is now going to be sudden destruction. The protective walls that he put up, he would tear down, which tells us he's going to be active in bringing about their destruction. It's not just that he's going to let the walls deteriorate. He's going to be involved and tear down the walls so that now any animal can come in and have free reign to damage and destroy. And of course, there's not going to be any more preventative maintenance, uh, no weeds or uh, other things taking out. And any of you who have a garden or a yard or a flower bed for that matter, know how quickly, if you just stop tending to it, how quickly the weeds will take over in just a few weeks or months, especially when all of this is accompanied by a severe drought. Now, the withholding of rain that we find uh, at the end of verse 5 there, or verse 6, that's probably the first clue that these people might have had that Isaiah is talking about God because God is the only one who can give or withhold rain. And in a desert environment like Israel, And at a time when irrigation was probably very scarce, if there is no rain, there is no life. There is nothing left to do. Any life left in the vines is going to wither away and die. Last week, the Pittsburgh Steelers lost to the Cleveland Browns in the first round of the NFL playoffs. And after the loss, the Steelers coach said this, we were a group that died on the vine." Now, when I read that on Monday, knowing that this was the text I was coming up with, I was like, well, that applies. He says, the reason we lost the the game is we died on the vine. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying here, that they're dying on the vine because there's no rain and there's going to be destruction. And these wild grapes are good for nothing. They're just going to wither up and go away. What a tragic and sad ending to what began as a promising endeavor. All the hard work resulted in no fruit. All the hope for the future proved worthless and vain. So that's the story. Well, you say, what is this all about? 
Well, let's move to the sense of the vineyard. Let's see what Isaiah is talking about. Is Isaiah an agricultural consultant who is trying to help us be better farmers and to figure out how we can do things a little bit differently and therefore produce a crop? Or does this have nothing to do with the vineyard? And this is not about vines or grapes at all. It's about something entirely different. And as you can well imagine, that's the case. This is a portrait of God's people. Isaiah has painted a picture so that hopefully they can see what they've done to God. How God has worked with them, and yet they did not produce fruit. This is about trampled grace, not a trampled garden. So the first thing we see is grace lavished. The point of all of this is the owner did everything in preparing and protecting his vineyard as a picture of all that God has done for us. And again, we acknowledge in this story, what more could the owner have done? And the implied answer was nothing. He did everything. And that is the same answer as it pertains to God and our relationship. And again, I'm not just talking about the initial aspect of salvation. I'm talking about the ongoing work of sanctification. And yet, when you and I take a few moments to examine our lives, and when we get honest about that examination, and we might determine that it does lack fruit in our lives, our initial response is, well, it's not our fault. And so we begin playing the if-only game. You know why I haven't produced fruit? Well, if only God had given me more resources. If only God had given me more talent. If only God had given me more time and ability. Then I could have produced fruit. And so the implied criticism is it's God's fault because he hasn't given me what I need in order to produce fruit. But this story tells the opposite ending. Listen to Peter's words in his second epistle. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Peter is saying that God's lavish grace means that we have everything we need, not just for salvation, but everything we need to produce a life of godliness. The result being that if we are not producing fruit in response to our salvation, it is our own fault. It is not God's fault. Now again, and I seem to have to say this regularly, but this is not work salvation. This is not produce fruit so that you can be saved. This is biblical. That is something we see here and many other places that we are to produce fruit as a result of our salvation. And therefore, the current trend of accepting saving grace and denying transforming grace is unbiblical. And that's the default position of many in American Christianity. Be saved by grace. It's totally an act of God. And then there's nothing more required. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? You know why? Because it's not true. It's not true that we're saved by grace and then we can just sit around the rest of our lives and wait till we go to heaven. That same grace that saves us is the grace that transforms us. And if we don't have those two elements, if there is saving grace, or at least we profess it, and there is no transformation, then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who called it cheap grace many years ago, is correct. 
It's just we've cheapened the grace of God because we've forgotten about the transforming element of it. Which means, secondly, grace trampled. I mean, that's my title today, but it's also the second point here because it is the main emphasis of this particular text and remains the problem in many American Christians. Let's see it in Israel, and then perhaps we can see it in ourselves. We didn't look at the rest of the chapter, but if you have your Bibles open, and I always encourage you to keep your Bibles open throughout the sermon, because I want you to see that my title, my points, my, uh, my message comes from the Word of God. I don't want you to go away thinking, what was he talking about? I want you to be able to connect it back to the text. And so there are six statements in the rest of this chapter that all begin, woe to those. Woe is, in essence, the opposite of blessed. And so in the rest of the chapter, he's going to give us six examples of what this wild fruit looked like. Verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, and there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. He's talking there about an aggressive greed. And surely I don't have to tell you that not only is America uh, characterized by aggressive greed, but in many cases, it's characteristic of the church, often flat out proclaimed as God's will for the faithful believer. I mean, can you imagine that? Isaiah is, is saying one of your problems is aggressive greed. And a whole segment of American Christianity is saying aggressive greed is a sign of a blessing from God. I mean, how easy we can twist what God has said is not right and try to believe that it is. Verse 11 we find the second woe, and this, this one speaks of sinful excess and a refusal to think. I certainly don't need to get started on my thoughts concerning the lack of thinking that is going on in our country and in our churches. But as believers, we ought to be able to tell the difference between what is a work of God and what is not. We ought to have that kind of discernment, and again, it's largely lacking. Verse 18, they are self-deceived. And they blame God for their problems, something we've already briefly addressed. The fourth woe, verse 20, they are rationalizing and redefining sin. And perhaps none of the other woes speak more clearly to our current culture than this one. But again, it's not just the culture. I'm not talking about everybody out there. I'm talking to the church, and Isaiah is talking to the children of God who are trampling upon his grace, not the evil society around them. And likewise, the church seems to follow the lead of the culture as we too rationalize and redefine sin. Verse 21, they are self-confident and wise in their own eyes rather than living in humility before God and trusting and following his wisdom. And again, I trust you can see how relevant and contemporary this is. This ancient prophet of Isaiah still speaks to us today because he's speaking the very words of God. And I am not making this applicable. It just simply is because we still struggle with the same sins and rebellion that we see here. The final woe is found in verse 22. A corrupt justice system due to drunken and bribed officials. This is now the third sermon we've done in this series called Insights from Isaiah, and in all three of them, the issue of social justice has come up. In fact, if we go back to verse 7 of our text, we see it there, and there's actually a play on words that doesn't come across very well in the English. God was looking for justice. Justice is the righting of wrongs, but instead he found bloodshed, which is the inflicting of wrongs, the exact opposite of what he expected. 
Again, it says he was looking for righteousness. But what he got, and this is a better word than the word outcry that ESV uses. And I'm not using this word because of the events of the recent weeks. I'm using this word because it's better for the play on words here in the Hebrew. He looked for righteousness. And what he got were riots. That's really a better translation there. And certainly you can see how applicable that is today. And as a result, judgment is coming. There's two therefores that spell this out, verses 24 and 25, spell out what's going to happen as a result of this wild fruit. Ah, but you say all of this is the Old Testament. I mean, we're in Isaiah. This is the Old Testament where God gave the law and God said you better keep the law. But we're New Testament Christians. And in the New Testament, God says we're saved by grace apart from the law. And so you say this doesn't apply to us. Well, let me read to you the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, do you think Jesus is talking about trees? No, he's talking about people. In fact, specifically in that text, he's talking about false prophets. And he says, how can you tell whether a a prophet is a true prophet or a false one? And the ultimate thing was, you will know them by their fruits. You can look at their lives and see whether or not they are producing the fruit of salvation. And later in the same gospel, Jesus says, a tree is known by its fruit. I mean, either it's good or bad. Those are your two options when it comes to a fruit tree. It produces good fruit or it produces bad fruit. There's no in between. So the bearing of fruit as a response and evidence of salvation is expected in both testaments. Which leads me to my final thought, and that is grace transforming. How do we make sure that rather than trampling upon grace, as we've seen, instead we are transformed by it? Well, in one sense, the answer has already been given in this statement, grace transformed. So even as we accept and embrace the grace of God, which brings salvation, we do the same when it comes to sanctification or walking faithfully with Christ. We trust and we ask that it is the grace of God that leads us to bear fruit. But there is more that we can do, and to continue the vineyard imagery, I'm going to turn to Jesus' words in John chapter 15. And there we find Jesus saying one of his I am statements, I am the true vine. And then he goes on to say that fruitless branches are cut off and those that bear fruit are pruned so that they will bear even more fruit. And then he comes to the key part of the passage that tells us about our responsibility. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he says, if you will do this, that is, if you will abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But he also says the opposite. He says, apart from me, that is, if you choose not to abide in me, you can do nothing. So herein lies the key to grace continuing to transform us, and that is staying connected to Christ. And that is not some mystical union that's hard for us to understand. Again, it simply goes back to the means of grace we mentioned at the outset. The Word of God both preached and read, the ordinances of God through the church, and the prayers of God's people. So what you're doing right now is a means of grace that God is using in your life to transform you. 
No, I do not mean that this sermon is going to be particularly so tremendous that you're going to go away from here going, boy, I was really transformed this morning. But as we embrace these elements week after week, year after year, God uses them gradually. Sometimes without us even being able to see it in the moment to transform us. And so we must stay connected. Let me leave you with one more verse from John 15. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The bearing of fruit doesn't make us disciples, but the bearing of fruit gives evidence that we truly are. Which means, again, I have to say the opposite. If we're not bearing fruit, it gives evidence that we're not disciples at all. And that was the problem in Isaiah's day. They weren't bearing fruit, and it remains a problem today. God has lavished his grace upon us for our salvation and for our transformation. And so again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I appeal to you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your lavish grace that has done everything we need, not only for salvation, but for transformation. And I pray that rather than trample upon that grace as we see in Isaiah, I pray that we would be transformed by it, that your grace would always be transforming so that we would bear much fruit and therefore prove to be your disciples. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.